Hello, hello. Check, 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 check. Is it coming through there? Hello, hello. <laughs> okay. Is it coming through? Can you see it? All right. Awesome. Okay. Well, good evening. Uh, let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for the fellowship that we can enjoy over food that you have provided for us so graciously, Lord. Uh, Father, we truly give you thanks for your provision, uh, not only of, of physical things, but of especially of spiritual things, of salvation, of Christ, and all the benefits that come with that, Lord. Uh, we know that all of these things flow from your goodness, from your grace and mercy toward us, Lord. And so we are thankful for that, Lord. We pray tonight that as we open your word together, that you would um, give us understanding, that you would give us the faith to believe the things that you reveal to us in your word, Lord, and that you would continue uh, to bring us in unity in Christ. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are, where did I put my clicker? Where did I put my clicker? I just had it. No, I just, ha I just had it in my hand. Okay, I got it. It's right here. So we're continuing tonight to look. Now, continuing. I mean, we're doing these once a month, and we didn't do one in December, so it's been a while. But we're continuing to look at the Lord's Supper. And specifically tonight, and we've touched on this in the past three or four uh, that we've done, on the relationship of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, and so I want to start out by thinking kind of about, so let's, let's kind of zoom out a little bit. Think about things that we do as a church, specifically on a Sunday morning uh, in worship. Now, what I want to think about just for a second and, and talk about is anything that we do, Whatever we choose to do, choose not to do, um, is, is actively teaching and forming the people of the congregation, right? Does that make sense? So everything that we do is, is saying something about God because it's worship. So how we worship God is saying something about who we believe God to be. Does that make sense? And then the same is true kind of in the negative sense. Whatever we choose not to do is saying what we don't believe or believe about God. So... Some examples, that was confusing, I understand. Some examples of this. Um, so the type of preaching that we do here at our church, expositional preaching, right? So we're, we're taking a passage of scripture. So like this last Sunday, Genesis 14, that's what the, the ground of our sermon. And then our sermon is explaining and exposing and applying the meaning of that piece of scripture. What does that method of preaching, there's many other methods of preaching, what does that teach us about what we believe about the Bible? What, what are we saying kind of implicitly through that method? It's not like a, just throw out some ideas. Okay, it's authoritative. Yeah, yeah. What else? The Bible's true. Every part of the Bible is important. Yeah, so like, exactly. So we're going through Genesis. We're not picking and choosing. Again, there won't necessarily be anything wrong with that. Um, but we are showing every piece of it. Genesis 14, even these Wars of the kings, like there's something to learn about here, right? Yeah. 
The word speaks for itself. That's right. Was there a hand over here? Okay. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. So as we're studying, we're looking at original languages to the best of our ability and seeing what's there. Absolutely. So you guys, you guys are getting it completely, nailing it on the head is it's showing that scripture is our highest authority. Now it's easy to say that. I mean, if you look at most evangelical, whatever that means, churches will say in their statement of faith that they believe scripture is inerrant and infallible, the highest authority. But sometimes in how they practice or how they preach, that doesn't, they're saying something else really, right? We don't need to give any negative examples about that. So that's a good example. What about the call to worship? So what are we teaching by the fact that we kind of officially start our service with a passage of, from God's word? Throw some ideas out at me. Absolutely. So it's setting the tone, right? So the first thing, again, officially, we have announcements, but the official start um, is the call to worship. And what we're doing is we're saying that God initiates, right? So God, we don't just come to worship God. The only reason we come to worship God is because he has first initiated and called us to worship him, right? First John, we love because he first loved us. So as we're doing this, this is forming us. It's forming our ideas about God. It's reminding us. I mean, this is the ultimate purpose of liturgy or how we structure things is it's implicitly teaching us. Um, those, those are great examples. You guys had some really good points. So the same thing is true for baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so you can just kind of start thinking about those things. How we practice baptism as a church uh, will teach something. So again, there's a difference sometimes. We can say we believe this. This is our statement of faith. How we practice it, how we actually do it on a Sunday morning, baptism, the Lord's Supper, is teaching. Whether we like it or not, it's always saying something. So to that point, then we need to be very careful and intentional with what we say, of course, about the Lord's Supper, about baptism, but then also how we practice it. We want those things to be consistent. Does that make sense? So, for example, this is a just this is not a real example, but if you say the Lord's Supper is very important, it's a very important thing in the church, and then you came to the church and we were practicing the Lord's Supper, and everyone was just opening a bag of Doritos and drinking Coke and like, hey, this is the Lord's Supper, this is great, let's all go home. That would be betraying what we say we believe about it, right? I don't think that's actually happened, but I don't want to YouTube it because it might have somewhere. Okay? So, all that to say, this is important. And I hope that we would all agree at minimum that Lord's Supper and baptism are important things. So, let's look at the Baptist faith and message. This is our statement of faith as a church. It's 2000. I don't know why it says 200. Yeah. This, this, this goes back all the way to 200 AD. Just kidding. 2000. So, here's what it says about baptism. And this is not, let me just say this too. This is our statement of faith as a church that the church agreed upon to have as their statement of faith before Dustin or I were here. So even before Josh was here, I think. Um, so this predates us. This is the statement of faith from the Southern Baptist Convention. We believe more than this about these things, but no less than this. So here's what it says. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
It is an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. And then here's kind of what we're talking about tonight. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Okay, so this is our statement of faith. Before coming to membership in the church, before coming to the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, one must be baptized. Okay, and then let's just look real quick at what it says about the Lord's Supper. Um, The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby members of the church, so notice again, members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate a second coming. Notice how they say fruit of the vine. That's really funny Um, because it's a Baptist statement of faith. Uh, Every other one says wine. Statement of faith. Uh, Every other one says wine. But and so here's the issue what we've been talking about over the last couple of months. We're technically out of alignment with this part. So we're good on church membership. So to be a member here, most of you are members, not all of you. um, You have to have been baptized as a believer. Right. Um, And as we do interviews with people. That's one of the questions we ask, you know, when were you baptized? Were you baptized? Do you need to get baptized? Um, and we've had all sorts of answers. I haven't been baptized. I'd love to get baptized. And so we saw that recently with, uh, Daniela and Adam, um, in their interview. No, we haven't been baptized yet. Let's get baptized. And it was wonderful. Um, so we get that we're good on that part, but baptism as a prerequisite to the Lord's supper, we're not practicing that right now. Um, so what we do with the Lord's Supper, and again, I know I'm kind of, you guys probably know this, what we say as we come to explain the supper each, the first of each month is this is a meal for Christians. So we do quote unquote fence the table. We do put a limit on it in that sense saying this is for Christians. What it would look like practically to be in alignment with this would be to simply say something like this is a meal for baptized believers or baptized Christians. Does that make sense? So in practice, it's, it's a, it's a big difference. Belief wise, practically speaking, it's not a huge difference. Does does that make sense? It's not some big thing like, you know, okay, now it's time to come to the Lord's supper. Please show your baptism card as you walk forward. Um, you know, no one's going to be, Hey, that person hasn't been baptized. Slap the elements out of their hands. Uh, nothing like that. Um, if there was someone, theoretically, who was partaking of the elements who had not been baptized, um, there would just be a conversation. Hey, we noticed you've been taking, you haven't been baptized yet. Uh, we would counsel you to profess faith in baptism and join the church. Um, so that's what it would look like practically to kind of put some, some skin on it. There, any questions on that? So we'll get to the why. Okay. Um, so Why? Why this statement? Why should baptism be a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper? Um, Well, there's a lot of reasons. Number one, let's talk about what these things are, right? So what is baptism? What does it symbolize? You can just death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. Um, It symbolizes as well, because it symbolizes that, our joining the faith, the the visible church, right? (laughs) Someone who has not professed 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is, is not a Christian, right? Now, there is a difference between believing that and then partaking of baptism, and we'll talk about that. Baptism symbolizes that you have partook in the actual death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So baptism is where a, a Christian, quote-unquote, puts on the team jersey, right? It's one, one author has a book on baptism, and he calls it going public. That's a great way to think about baptism. It's where the faith that you profess is now publicly declared, okay? So we don't believe as Baptists, we don't believe that baptism saves you, that it's effectual in that sense, but we do believe that it is the public profession of what a Christian should believe. It's, it's also this, it is, um, because it's not just an individual thing, baptism is something that a church does to someone. That, and that's why you see the way we do things here. So as we baptize someone on a Sunday morning, it is the church collectively affirming this person has gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of King Jesus. Okay, they, they've, they've put on the team jersey. They've changed allegiances in a sense. That is what baptism is signifying. Um, we see this in scripture a lot. So think about Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Okay? Jesus has all the authority. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Okay, so the command is make disciples of all nations. How are you going to make a disciple of Jesus? You're going to baptize him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons, Trinitarian theology, it's beautiful baptizing them. So when Jesus says, he commands his apostles, go make disciples, the first thing he says is, baptize them. Okay? So we're seeing right in this text that this very thing, baptism is the initiation of the Christian life. It's the going public of the Christian life. It's, it's the first step in the Christian life. And then baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But the order is important. What comes first is baptizing. Baptism comes first. This is the order. Now, someone could say, okay, so if teaching comes second, then, Mr. Smarty Pants, what about our kids? Because you don't think we should baptize babies, right? And we would say, right, no, we don't. So then are you saying we shouldn't teach our kids to obey Jesus until they've been baptized? No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> no. But what we are saying, kind of in related to this topic, is they should not, as anyone should not, participate in the Lord's Supper until they've been baptized. So, um, because again, baptism is not saying this person is saved, whereas before they weren't saved, but it is the church officially affirming the profession of faith of that person. We are commanded in Scripture not to baptize our children, not to baptize infants, but we are commanded to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, if they are believers with a credible profession of faith, as we all hope and pray for, um, then upon a credible profession of faith, the first step isn't the Lord's Supper, but baptism. Baptism. Question, yes? I see this statement here more as... An adult person coming to know Christ for the mm -hmm. first time. 
as opposed to children who have been raised on church. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who's walking off the street that you've invited to church. First, they're baptized. Then they come to know the Lord. Sure, yes. And then you train them. Yes, yes, yes. That's where I'm seeing this come from. Yeah, and I think it definitely applies to that situation. First and foremost, I mean, sending out the apostles to do exactly that. Absolutely. Kids raised in church are going to already have this foundation by the time. Hopefully. They should. Yes. 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 And that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, But yes, exactly. So. Uh, so that's one text. Again, these are, these are texts. There's, there's nowhere in scripture that's going to say you must be baptized before you partake of the Lord's Supper. But we're kind of implicitly seeing what is baptism, what is the Lord's Supper. We want to be consistent with what we believe, what the scripture teaches about them, and how we practice them. So that's, that's one text. Another one I want to look at is Galatians 3.25. Now this one, is, this one is so interesting. Listen to what, again, we're thinking what is baptism and then we're going we're gonna to connect the dots. What is the Lord's Supper? Okay, what is baptism? It's kind of the going public of our faith. Listen to what Paul says. But now that faith has come, so it's in a whole, you know, whole long thing he's getting on, but we're going to look at baptism. We are no longer under, under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, so how are we in? We're in through faith. Okay. For as many of you, as we're baptized into Christ, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Which, as we're going to see, as we saw in Genesis 12, as we're going to see in Genesis 15, is, 15 is, is an amazing thing. Uh, wonderful thing. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So one of the things we say a lot, and the reason is texts like this, in the New Testament church, there's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. So baptism doesn't save you, but as soon as someone comes to salvation, they're baptized. So Paul can say, all of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. You're in union with Christ. Think about your baptism. Think about what your baptism signified and meant. It, it's symbolizing and signifying your union with Christ. So just like Kelly said, your death, burial, and resurrection has become united with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul can say, I'm dead. I don't live anymore. It's only Christ living through me. I died at baptism. What he says in Romans 6. And then I was resurrected to walk in newness of life. That's where we get that language. So again, this is what baptism is signifying. It's not only just signifying, okay, now I'm a Christian. But the reason it signifies that is because it's a sign of a person's, of all of our, all these yous are plural. This is all corporate language of our union with Christ. So why should a church have unity? Not just because the Bible says have unity, but because of the spiritual reality that each one of us is individually in Christ. We're in union with Christ Jesus so that this church and all believers all over the world are literally, literally one spiritual body because we're all in Christ. This is what baptism is signifying. 
So when Paul's talking about, this text is about church unity. That's why right away he says, there's no Jew nor Greek. In other words, don't treat anyone differently because you're all in Christ Jesus. Baptism is, is foundational to church unity and to our union with Christ. Uh, so it's not an individual ordinance. Sometimes we think about it as, well, it's just someone who professes their faith in Jesus. Yes, it's that. But it's something that's practiced and administered by the church. It's a sign and symbol, ultimately, again, of our, our unity in Christ and in the body, the church. Can you see how Paul grounds that unity, the unity of the church in their baptism? You all should be unified. And he does the same thing in Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So when Paul talks about the unity of the church, he always talks about baptism. Again, we've been baptized into Christ. Okay, so baptism is a sign, a visible sign of our the unity of the church, of our union with Christ. Well, what is another sign of the visible unity and oneness of the church? The Lord's Supper. Communion has the same meaning in a different sign. Okay, the, the Lord's Supper is meant to show forth our union with Christ. We are participating with the bread and with the blood, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, in the body and blood of Christ. So this is where there's this cool play on words. The church is the body of Christ. In the partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, we are participating in the body of Christ. These things are all about union, our, our union with Christ. This is why Paul... Paul says more than anyone else, we're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Now think about this, again, because sometimes we think if we, if we only believed what the Baptist faith and message said, and let me go back to it real quick. Remember I said we believe more than this. If we only believed this, that it's, it's maybe just about, you know, memorializing the death of the Redeemer and anticipating... Now it is that, but it's much more than that. We're seeing this. If we only believe that, we might be tempted to, to miss out on some of this unifying language. But think about 1 Corinthians 11. And this is, this is not a rhetorical question. What is Paul upset, to put it mildly, at the Corinthians? Why is he mad? How are they mistaking the Lord's Supper? Overindulging, yes. They were using it as a regular meal and not designed to be well, yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Exactly. So. Yes. And this is what he says. So First Corinthians. I don't think I have this on here. First Corinthians eleven, or maybe I do. I do. Okay. Cool. First Corinthians eleven. Now again, what what I want to show you by this is that when we think about the Lord's Supper, we need to think about union with Christ, our unity in the body, the church. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, okay, so notice the corporate church language. This is really important. I hear that there are divisions among you. Okay, so Paul's not happy about the divisions. So first we can just say, 
by having divisions in their church body while they partake of the Lord's Supper. Now remember, go back to the beginning. What are they teaching? What are they teaching their people? They are saying that their union with Christ is false. They're sowing divisions in the body where, spiritually speaking, there are no divisions. They're dividing up the body of Christ. Okay? That's what Paul's upset about. So, they're saying on one hand, we believe we're all united in Christ. We believe we're spiritually one, brothers and sisters. By their division in how they're practicing the Lord's Supper, and we'll see how they're practicing it in a second, they're teaching, no, actually, we're not united in Christ. And so, they're actually teaching false truths about Jesus. This is why it's such a serious thing. This is why how we practice the Lord's Supper, how we practice baptism is so serious because however we choose to do it, we're saying something. And Paul is upset with them here for what they're teaching. They're showcasing division where they should be showcasing unity in Christ. Again, baptism and the Lord's Supper both are to be symbols of the unity and oneness of the church because of our union with Christ. Um, he's, he's actually upset with how the Corinthians are practicing baptism as well. First Corinthians chapter one, they're using baptism as a way to divide themselves. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by someone. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you because I don't want to hear anyone say, well, I was baptized by Paul. Um, so they've taken these two ordinances, the only two ordinances of the church that are meant to show forth the, the glorious unity of the church in Christ Jesus and they've used them as symbols of division in the church. Not by their teaching, but by their practice. So they had an accurate doctrinal statement, so to speak. But the way they were practicing it, and we see this here, they're, they're saying, actually, we don't, we're not consistent. Um, okay, I don't have the second one on here. Maybe I don't have it. Absolutely, Mike. Okay, so as a, as a church... We bet those people that we believe that are Christians can mm-hmm. be baptized into our local church, which allows them to be members of the church mm-hmm. and partake of the Lord's Supper. Should we then not only allow church members to take the Lord's Supper? That is a conclusion that some people have come to. Yes. So some people have said in history... Um, The easiest and cleanest way to do this is to have the Lord's Supper for members of the local church. Um, And if someone wants to participate at this church, they should become a member uh, because then they're under the pastoral accountability. We know who they are. Um, And I can see the logic of that position. I wouldn't fault anyone for holding that position. Um, But if we're talking, that, that would be here maybe. And then the other position, which would be like, just a, it's a total free for all. Uh, there are there are places in between that we can that we can stop, and we'll we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, Mitchell. So what Mitchell and we'll talk about this. I have some. We'll talk a little bit about church history at the end here, um, as I'm looking at the clock. Okay, um, what they used to do in the early church, and they still do in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, is they, uh, there is part of their liturgy is the dismissal of catechumens, which just means someone who hasn't been baptized, someone who's preparing for baptism, but hasn't been baptized yet. Um, 
they, they dismiss them. And in the early church, they would go out to kind of like a Sunday school thing and receive further instruction. Um, in the modern Eastern Orthodox churches, they stay in the church, but they just, they know they're not supposed to partake of the supper because they haven't been baptized. Um, so that, that is what some churches do. Churches who practice it, like you described, Mike, normally what they do is they have a separate service on like a Sunday night for the Lord's Supper. And they just only invite the members. Um, and sometimes they'll say, you know, you can come if you want to just watch, but it's, it's strictly the members because of texts like this. There you go. Yeah. What kind of church was that? Missionary Baptist. Okay. Yep. Um, there's one of those right down the street. It's like a little teeny church. I always drive by it. Anyway, I'm distracted. Well, that's, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, the, okay, so here, here's kind of the point. What, one of the things I'm driving at here. We can't divide the ordinances, right? So they are signs and symbols of the same reality, union with Christ. Each one, baptism, the Lord's Supper, are meant to showcase our unity as a church, as members in the body of Christ, and also our unity with other believers in Christ. And so if we say you have to be baptized to become a church member, you don't have to be baptized to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're kind of speaking out both sides of our mouth, in a sense. Um, one author I was reading on this says this. This is good. It says, The Lord's Supper not only marks the fullness of one's entrance into the visible fellowship, but in its repeated administration, so partaking of it multiple times over time, it functions as the ongoing renewal of the fellowship. Okay, so baptism is someone's entrance into the fellowship. Lord's Supper is that constant renewal over time, right? This makes sense of why we say things like, you know, or what Jesus says, if you have something against a brother and sister, go take care of that first before you partake of this sign because it's a sign of unity, right? So to partake of it when there's contentions and divisions like the First Corinthians church is, again, showcasing division rather than unity. So baptism is entrance into the fellowship. The Lord's Supper is ongoing renewal of that covenantal entrance. This is what same thing Dustin said on Sunday. So practicing it this way preserves the sign and symbol of each of the ordinances. It helps keep their importance uh, in, in front of our eyes. Right in 1 Corinthians 12, right after 1 Corinthians 11, uh, this is where Paul goes into the whole thing about one body, many members. And in that section, again, speaking all about church unity, he says, for in one spirit were we all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink in one spirit. Again, whenever Paul starts talking about church unity, he goes back to baptism, which is really important to understand and think about. Any questions so far, comments? More? We got more to cover, don't worry. Yes, sir. Amen. Great point. Yeah, so what... 
Yes. <coughs> Absolutely. So the, in the Lord's Supper, we're remembering not just Jesus, but our baptism. That's what one of the things we're remembering. And as we're watching other people get baptized, and, and Lord willing, we'll have many more of these, we're remembering our baptism, our entrance into union with Christ. Absolutely. So, and this, so this is what we're getting at, to then say, no, you don't need to be baptized to partake of the Lord's Supper. Again, seems to be betraying what we're, we're trying to teach about these things. Let's look at another text. This one I just found fascinating as I was studying it. So here's Acts 2, and I don't think I, um, I don't have the beginning part because uh, it's just too much. So this is right after Peter's preached that kind of famous first sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he basically, it's a big group of thousands of Jews. And he says, you killed Jesus. And I mean, that's, you know, that's the main point of his sermon. And um, at the end of his sermon, it says they were cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. So again, just showing that the entrance, the very first step is repent and be baptized. Um, two sides of the same coin in a, sec, in a sense. Repent and then as a sign of that, be baptized in Christ. So then here, this comes right after that. Um, and by the way, so they, then it, right after that, it says this. So those who received his word... That's faith language. Those who believed what Peter said about Jesus were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So again, notice what came first. They were baptized. Faith, they received his word. Then they were baptized as a sign of that faith. And then, then there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the only people that were added were those who had received by faith and then were baptized. Okay, so this is how we practice church membership. And what comes next? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, so there's our preaching. And the fellowship, fellowship of the church. So notice what comes first before fellowship and teaching. Baptism. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, breaking of bread, and I'll, I'll show you some, some uh, quotes of this. This is the Lord's Supper. So what we see here, which is really cool, Baptist Catechism says this, is all the means of grace. We have preaching, we have baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. All just in this text, in the very early church, this is what they did when they got together. Um, and again, the order is really important. They received by faith, they were baptized into the community, and then they participated in the fellowship of the community, part of which was the Lord's Supper. Um, so a couple of scholars on this, in case you're like breaking a bread, I think they were just eating Listen to a couple. Listen to a couple of these. Um, one famous New Testament scholar, I. Howard Marshall, he says this: uh, There was the breaking of bread. This is Luke's term for what Paul calls the Lord's Supper. It refers to the act with which a Jewish meal opened and which had gained peculiar significance for Christians in view of Jesus's actions at the Last Supper and also when he fed the multitudes. So remember, when Jesus at the Last Supper he broke bread and gave it to him. This is why they call it the breaking of bread. This is what Luke calls it. Here's another skull, F.F. Bruce. Um, notice both of these guys. First name is an initial, always more authoritative. Um, you can just call me D. Jeffrey Saunders from now on. It will be better. Um, anyway, this is what he says. The breaking of bread here denotes something more than the ordinary partaking of food together. The regular observance of the Lord's Supper is no doubt indicated 
While this observance appears to have formed part of an ordinary meal, the emphasis on the act of breaking the bread, a circumstance wholly trivial in and of itself, suggests this was the significant element of the celebration. So what he's saying is, this is the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense why they would describe it like this. So again, baptism, then Lord's Supper. This is the pattern we're seeing. So in summary, just to kind of, kind of bring these things together, baptism is how we express our, our joining of the church, of the community of Christ. The Lord's Supper is how we express or renew our belonging to the community of Christ. These ordinances are inextricably linked. So we can't belong before we join, right? That just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, again, visibly, publicly. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, we show forth our unity in Christ. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, which is, again, something that a believer does, um, Paul says. And it's also, it's a reminder. It's a reminder of our baptism, as Rod pointed out, because it's a reminder of Christ. And all these things are just like huge Venn diagram overlapping all the time. When we remember Jesus, we remember his death, burial, and resurrection. Oh, and then we remember our baptism. I was baptized into Christ. I, I died his death. I arose again with him. And then we partake of the elements, which again, remind us of the body and blood of Christ. And so it's this beautiful cycle of the Christian life as God works through the means of grace to constantly edify and nourish our faith. This is why we observe the supper. Uh, we kind of try to balance these things with a solemn and serious manner because we're remembering the death of our Savior. But at the same time, with a celebratory spirit, we're celebrating our union with Christ. We're celebrating His victory over sin, death, and the devil. So again, I already said that, never mind. So again, when we do these things, when we practice baptism, we administer baptism, when we administer the Lord's Supper, we're speaking and teaching. So we have to do so truthfully. Um, and so these things are linked. This is the essence of the Baptist faith. So this is, this is why Baptist churches exist historically. Uh, is because this is what they taught, and not everyone liked it. Um, the people who didn't like it are people like Father Brian, Anglicans, and uh, which is what he was talking about at the beginning of his sermon, which is really funny. Um, it's a great twist in history that now he's renting from us. Um, love that guy. But, but this is literally why we exist. Um, this is the essence of the distinction between Anglicans and Presbyterians and Baptists. Um, this is why the Reformers were drowning Baptists, because they didn't like what they said about baptism, and then what that then following that meant about the Lord's Supper. And so we are Baptists. This is a Baptist church. We should not be ashamed of that. Okay, 15 minutes. Here's what we're going to do real quick. I'm going to move to this section. I want to just do a little survey of some church history and, and some of the practices of this. So one of the things you see in the history of the church, is this has always been practiced. Baptism has always been the prerequisite um, to the Lord's Supper. Now, let me, let me quote some things for you. And let's start with the Didache. These are in chronological order. So um, this is the Didache. 
This is what it says. So this is from around 100 AD. So people who know the apostles are still alive. That doesn't make it inerrant or inspired. It means teaching. So if you read it, it just lays out a bunch of different teachings about all sorts of interesting stuff. Here's one of the things it says. Let none eat or drink of your Eucharist. That's the Lord's Supper. Eucharist just means Thanksgiving. Again, don't let the Roman Catholics take that word. Let none eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the Lord's name. Um, and again, if you read the Didache on this, um, the reason is church unity. As this, this is what it says. Uh, concerning the bread, it says to pray this. We give thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you've made known to us through Jesus, your child. To you be glory forever. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Um, so again, don't let anyone tell you that the early church didn't believe in the deity of Christ. They very much did. So around 180, we're already seeing this. Um, Justin Martyr, around, he lives from around 100 to 165 AD. Listen to what he says. And this food is called among us Eucharist, Thanksgiving, of which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes that the things we teach are true and who has been washed, there's baptism, with the washing that is for the remission of sins and under regeneration, and who is living as Christ has enjoined. Okay, so same prerequisite. Cyprian, another church father, 210, 258. Their beards are putting us to shame. <laughs> for by baptism, the Holy Spirit is received, and thus those who are baptized and have received the Holy Spirit are allowed to drink of the Lord's cup. Okay, you just, it's, it's just this pattern you always see. Baptism, Lord's Supper. Baptism, Lord's Supper. Apostolic constitutions. Another, it's not written by the apostles. It's much later, but it's just another um, collection of teachings we have from the early church. We receive the heathen or pagans, unbelievers, when they wish to repent into the church, indeed to hear the word, but do not receive them to communion until they receive the seal of baptism and are made complete Christians. That's kind of an interesting statement because they're saying they're Christians here, but they're not, it's not like official until they've been baptized, which is exactly what we're saying. Again, this is just the pattern of the church. Now we're going to skip ahead. I mean, this was the pattern in all the reformed churches. We'll skip ahead and get to some, some good old Baptist boys. So he looks curmudgeonly, but you know what? If you lived in the 1600s, you'd probably be curmudgeonly too. Um, yes. Where did they start baptizing babies? That's a great question that we don't have time to go into. Um, pretty early on. Um, and there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Because yeah. I'm seeing a pattern that in the previous ones that to this one, that it's like, Basically, they're all adults being baptized. There's no yes. Baptism, no baby. Yes. And Amen. Amen. Why are they baptizing babies? Exactly. Thank you. At some point, they brought in babies. Yes, they did. That would be the yes. That well, that would be a really we could do that. We could just kind of tackle infant baptism. I would love to do that because it is it is fascinating. Um, but it comes in later. So here's the Baptist Catechism, wonderful document. Um, and this is again, this is just saying what baptism is. Let's skip ahead a little bit. Um, what is the Lord's Supper? I love this statement. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance. Or ordinance means there are two things the Lord has commanded his church to do regularly, baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, okay, this is pre-temperance movement Baptist, okay? According to his appointment, his death is shown forth and the worthy receivers are, not after a 
corporal or carnal manner. In other words, we're not Roman Catholics, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood. That's 1 Corinthians 10 with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. Okay. So as we partake of this regularly, we're being nourished spiritually and growth growing in grace. That's means of grace language. Then it says this, who are the proper subjects of this ordinance? The Lord's supper. They who have been baptized upon a personal profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from dead works. So who should partake of the Lord's Supper? Those who have professed Christ and repented from dead works. Okay. So again, this is just, just showing you the pattern. This is kind of what the church has, has always teach it, taught, teach it, teach it, taught until recently. Here's the abstract of principles. So uh, this James P. Boyce, he was one of the founders of Southern Seminary, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I should say. Um, here's what he says in the abstract of principles. This is his kind of statement of faith. It's a wonderful statement. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus, obligatory upon every believer, amen, wherein he is immersed in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit as a sign of his fellowship. There's union with Christ language, with the death and resurrection of Christ, of remission of sins, and of giving himself up to God to live and walk of newness of life. It is prerequisite to church fellowship, and to participation in the Lord's Supper. So you can see where the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is getting some of its language. Then he says this, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Jesus Christ to be administered with the elements of bread and wine, pretemperance, and to be observed by his churches till the end of the world. It is in no sense a sacrifice, that's contra Roman Catholicism, but is designed to commemorate his death, to confirm the faith and other graces of Christians, and to be a bond, pledge, and renewal of their communion with him and of their church fellowship. I love that. Um, a bond pledge and renewal of their communion with him and of their church fellowship. And so why he would say this then is, brothers and sisters, how can someone renew their communion with the church, their bond, their pledge, if they've never made it in the first place in baptism? You can't. It just, it just betrays the significance of the actual element uh, is what, James P. Boyce would say. Um, so, any questions? Yes, Rod. Amen, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's all I love. He says his churches should practice this till the end of the world. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good, good distinction. Um, Mitchell. Is there a specific reason that a Baptist used grape juice instead of wine throughout history? I'm not really sure. I don't so the temperance movement, um, grape juice wasn't invented as like a thing that could be kept until around the 1880s. So that's why you'll see 1858 he's wine. Everyone used wine for the first 2000 years of the church. Um, and then it was a Methodist guys, a Methodist named Welch. It's serious. Look it up. It's interesting. Um, invented grape juice during some of the temperance movements um, so that they wouldn't have to use alcoholic wine for the Lord's Supper. And then 
obviously the Baptist churches and many other churches in America were affected by the temperance movement. And so it's kind of continued on um, to this day. Uh, so churches practice that differently uh, who use wine. Some um, put out wine and then either in the same thing in like a different uh, way, use some grape juice for someone who has a conscience like that. Um, some will have it in different areas. So I knew one church that had like wine and then white grape juice so they could see the difference. So if you, you know, you wanted one of those. Um, Brian, so the Holy Spirit Anglican, what they do is they only have wine, um, but they, in their statement of faith, it actually says that if you just take the bread, it's fine that you kind of get the whole package with just the bread. So if you don't want to take the wine, you don't have to. Um, and there's historic reasons for that. Some churches who only have wine uh, just basically say if this much wine is going to send you into a drinking fit, then like we'd love to just spend more time counseling you and um, you should be able to partake with wine is what the Bible says. So those are kind of all different things on that. We, we could talk more about that too sometime. Um, so that's all I have. Maybe what we could do, is, is there any other questions or comments? Uh, Kelly, and then we'll do Christian. The, the, the um, grape juice was brought up. I know growing up, we had the unloved bread. My mother used to make it for um, the Lord's Supper when we'd have Lord's Supper Church. Is, is that, I know we use regular bread here. Mm -hmm. I know we've used the, we bought the little... The wafers. wafers. Oh, nobody likes those. And yeah. But, but, <laughs> I guess the point I'm trying to make is, does it matter if it's unleavened bread? Or does it... Or, I mean, there have been, like, wars over that <laughs> in history. Um, I... I think there are more... It matters. Um, there are more important considerations. So, again, we don't want to be so tit for tat that we kind of miss the forest for the trees. But for example, the wafers versus like the loaves of bread. I don't think if someone uses the wafers, they're not partaking of the Lord's Supper and everything is false. But the bread does a better job of signifying the breaking of Jesus's body and of the unity of the church all partaking from one loaf. Um, even if it's a couple, because there's you know more of us than that'd be a really big loaf of bread. But you know what I mean? So these things are significant. Um, people have had disagreements over the leavened, unleavened, you know. Christian. Um, in order to be in, in step with the Baptist faith and message, do you think we would have to require um, Christians to be baptized to take the supper or Christians to be baptized at the So, oh, let's see. A couple minutes on that one. Um, so what Christian is asking is essentially, what about people who've been baptized as infants, right? So a Presbyterian visiting comes to our church and wants to take the Lord's Supper. He's rightfully picking up, well, if baptism is by immersion as a believer, then we have to tell them, you were never baptized. Um, so there's, there's two ways to handle that, that question. Well, there's three. One is to not require baptism as a prerequisite for the, for the Lord's Supper. Um, the, the next way is to say, um, so most Baptists throughout history have said, yeah, they weren't baptized by immersion as a believer, 
Um, I'm sorry, that's how the Bible describes baptism. It's not like, it's not my fault. <laughs> like, I, you know, um, you should be baptized. And so that's how they would handle that. So um, you could say baptized as a believer. This meal is for those who have been baptized as a believer um, in a gospel preaching church. Because um, there are people who have been baptized as believers in non-gospel preaching churches, which we would also say is not. So, if, for example, if someone's baptized in the Mormon church, They've been baptized as a believer, but it's not a Trinitarian. It's not a legitimate baptism. It's not a gospel preaching church. It's not a Trinitarian baptism. We can talk about that um, later. Uh, So this is what's interesting. Here's what Spurgeon did in his church. And I find this very balanced and intriguing to me. What Spurgeon said was, because the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a sign of the unity of the church, He was uncomfortable with just saying, no, unless you've been baptized by immersion, you can't take the Lord's Supper. Um, Because his, he was rightfully saying, but I do believe, you know, my, the faithful Presbyterians and Anglicans are brothers and sisters in Christ. So that seems too harsh for me. Although again, that has been the historic position of most Baptists. Um, What he did in his church was essentially, if someone was visiting a Presbyterian, someone who's baptized as an infant, they could partake of the Lord's Supper once or twice in his church. Um, and the way he reasoned it was, well, they are members faithfully in another local church, and they're just visiting. They can partake. Um, if they then decide to regularly, regularly attend our church as their home, um, they, should, they can't partake of the Lord's Supper until they become members because they need to be baptized. So he would kind of like extend grace a little bit for someone visiting, but then say, if you're going to regularly attend our church, um, you know, you, you can take it once or twice, but you need to become baptized after that. Um, or we're going to ask you not to take it the supper. So he kind of balances that the unity, the broader unity with the Baptist convictions, which I find pretty fascinating. Um, anyway, so that's how people handle that historically. Yeah. Yes. So historically it has been. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it has been. And and Baptists have just said, we're Baptists. The Bible said a baptism, the word baptism is a Greek word that means to be immersed. Um, And it preserves the, the symbolism of dying with Christ, being raised to walk in newness of life. And so... Um, others have said, no, that's still a baptism. It was done in a bad way, but it still counts. Um, so like even the Didache, which is interesting. So back in hundred AD says, uh, in its section on baptism, it says, ideally what should happen is someone should be baptized, like immersed in running water because running water is living water. And that kind of has like even more symbolism. They say, what if all you have is a still pool, that's kind of second best. But if you're like in the desert and there's no water, then sprinkling is okay. Um, that's what the Didache says. Again, that's not authoritative, but you can see how people were even thinking through it back then. Um, living in times where they didn't really have access to water like we do. Yeah, Anna. Mm-hmm. Yes, to go. I knew I was, I knew I was, I knew I was. And all these examples, it doesn't sound like it's specifically saying that 
Yeah, yeah. When does Yeah, and so that's what that's what would look like if we practice it was more of a, this is what our requirements are. And if you meet that, feel free to come to the table. That's how most churches practice it. There are some who limit it to their members. Um, I mean, and again, that's fine. If like, I have no problem with that. Um, but most churches just say, hey, this is, you know, kind of our, this is, if you are a baptized believer um, of a, from a gospel preaching church and are in good standing there, come to the table um, if you're visiting. Um, I did go to a church once that was a reformed church. Um, I think it was in the same kind of denomination that like Westminster, Escondido, that kind of reformed um, and what they did, I thought this was kind of interesting. And again, so from a visitor's perspective, because sometimes the worry is, well, isn't this going to be offensive? Um, and the question is, well, who would it offend? And we can talk about that. But so as a visiting person of their church, they had a statement that said, if you do not, you know, here's what we believe about the Lord's Supper. Um, and at the time, I wasn't really comfortable with it. Um, it said, if you, you know, this is not your belief on the Lord's Supper, then we would ask you um, to not partake because, you know, this is what we believe about it. If you don't believe that, then, you know, we love you, but we, you know, this is our thing. And then it also said, if you're a visitor here um, and you would like to partake, um, you know, our elder, our elders will be um, right outside the sanctuary, you know, 20 minutes before the service, just go have a short conversation with them. Let us know where you're from and kind of what church you're a part of. And, and we'll talk, you know, so some people did, they just said, Hey, I'm from this church, you know, I'm visiting here on good Friday or whatever. And the elders said, yeah, yeah go ahead and take, but they, that's one of the ways that they kind of balance that. If that makes sense. Yes. I won't shoot you with a laser pointer. Where it was close communion, only members of our church could participate going out to other churches visiting and they were doing the Lord's supper and they had open communion. Mm -hmm. Just like anyone. It was very odd. Yeah. Very strange to participate. And it was kind of like they knew you, that you belonged to church. So if you didn't participate, they'd like, well, why aren't you participating? That's a good but point. If you did participate, you yourself felt like, is this right? I'm not a member of this church. Right. Interesting. So, That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. It's like, hmm, I'm going to catch the two here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of reasons for this. So some of the benefits of um, requiring verbally a uh, uh, believer's baptism. Um, it elevates the significance and the meaning of both the ordinances. So growing up, um, my parents, I don't actually know what our church taught on this, but my parents just always taught me like, yeah, once you're baptized, you can partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, and so as a child, when the Lord's Supper time came around, I mean, I was there in the service and it was a teaching time to teach me what it meant, what baptism meant and, and kind of what I could aspire to. Um, and so it kind of elevated the importance of the elements, I, not elevated them. I think it elevated them rightly to their right significance. Um, and that was very helpful. Um, so we run the risk if we're not in line of, of lowering the significance of the elements. I mean, and this has happened in other churches. I mean, there's churches that there, this is like a mega church, but there was a church that they had, Oh, it's Lord's supper Sunday. 
Um, on your way out the door after the service, just go ahead and pick up one of the packets with the wafer and the juice and the same thing and take it as you head out. I mean, that, that was how significant the Lord's Supper was to them. That, again, that's teaching something. Um, so one of the harms, there are some, though, as we can think of kind of like pros and cons, there are some harms that come with not fencing the table, uh, just having fully open communion. If we're saying, like we've seen in Scripture, that it's a, again, as, as Boyce puts it, it's a bond, a pledge, renewal of our communion with Christ, of our union with Christ, allowing people to indiscriminately partake of it who are either believers not in good standing with a local fellowship or um, you know, someone who has a false profession of faith who thinks there's a believer, we're actually giving them a false assurance of their salvation, um, which is very dangerous. So baptism is just a helpful, it's not foolproof, and that's okay, but it's a helpful kind of stopgap. Say, if you haven't been baptized as a believer, it's not like leave our church, we don't want to talk to you again. It's we want to talk to you about the gospel, about baptism, about um, joining the faith and the church. So we run the risk of false assurance, which is a terrifying thing. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 11, and this is kind of a mysterious text, but he says if you partake of the supper unworthily, um, you can drink judgment upon yourself. And he says, this is why some of you are sick and dying. Um, so there's potential physical side effects to partaking unworthily. Is It's not something we think about a lot, uh, but that's pretty terrifying. Um, so to just kind of open the floodgates and say, hey, whatever, you know, we just, we love everybody. It's not actually, if we believe this, the loving thing to do. Um, and again, so if we say we, we want you to be baptized before you partake of the Lord's Supper, again, maybe there's a risk that some people might feel excluded, but the people that might feel excluded, an unbaptized believer, well, I mean, in, in, a, in a loving, healthy sense, they should feel excluded because what should they do? Get baptized. <laughs> Absolutely. And if there's no thing that they can't do in the church without if they don't have to be baptized to participate fully in the church, then it doesn't, we don't really believe that much about baptism. It's not very significant. Um, so that kind of tension is good. They should, they, should, they should feel a little bit of awkwardness. Well, I'm a believer, but I haven't been baptized. They should feel, oh, I should get baptized. Um, an unbeliever might feel a little bit, but again, that, that they should rightfully feel excluded from the fellowship of Christ, of those who are in union with Christ. They should know, hey, I'm not part of this, this fellowship. Um, and again, we should preach the gospel to them. They should profess faith and come to receive uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, yes. Yeah, totally. As a baptized believer and I visit another church and they have communion. So my attitude towards communion would be one of, as we talked about, message here. But what if they don't have that same view? It's a good question. That's a great question. That's a great question. Okay, okay. Okay, 740. Okay. Um, okay, I'll make it short. Um, I, I would say, first of all, you know, follow your convictions on that. Um, you know, you could talk to us about it, a specific church. Um, Roman Catholic Church, I, I, I wouldn't take because 
and again, we don't have time to go into all of what they believe about it, but it's significantly different. Denies justification by only say and participate in the the Lord's no thank you um, uh, at a Presbyterian church you know where Yeah, and then that can be a beautiful thing. So I um, I visited a church. Well, at Holy Spirit Anglican Church a couple months ago, um, I took communion with them. Sim- similar, they have similar beliefs, similar experience. Talked with Brian beforehand. He said, we'd love for you to participate. Kind of here's what we believe. And it was like, yeah, we can do that. Um, yeah. So it, it's kind of case by case basis, but there's nothing wrong. I mean, again, if you don't partake of this, that's totally fine too. If you just feel like, you know what? I, I feel a little bit weird about this for whatever reason. You know, so when I went to that reformed church a while back on Good Friday and base, I read their thing. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not going to take communion. I want to respect what they believe. I didn't feel angry. I didn't feel excluded. It was just, yeah, this is their church, and um, I'm still happy to be here. You know, absolutely. Any other questions? I love stupid questions. I'm good at asking them. The bread. So, in a sense, we don't believe anything magical or superstitious has happened to the bread and the juice. Um, It still seems to me just disrespectful. You know, like I, I don't have a biblical reason for it, but it just seems like if this is this big significant thing that it just kind of works against that a little bit. You know, and if we're, te- if, if we're teaching, as I would teach my kids, no, this is for baptized believers. Well, as soon as the service is over, you can go up and eat all the bread and drink all the juice. That seems to work against what I'm trying to teach them, you know, um, if that makes sense. And again, it's just kind of my personal opinion. The way you put it totally gives me another picture that I've never thought of. Yeah. I, I, one of the pastors that I grew up with, he said one time, he said, you know, I think theologically, I would have a much higher view of the supper, but the way that I've allowed the elements to be treated over the years, he's like, I just don't think I could believe that now and feel good about myself. So, so we want to protect ourselves against that. Um, yeah, yeah, Mitchell. And then we'll, then we'll be done. I don't think it's really common. What about the Orthodox Church? They're different from Catholic. Nobody knows what the Orthodox believe. They don't have any systematic theology. So they, if you ask them, they're like, it's a mystery, man. Um, like seriously, and that's part of their theology. They're, they're more, they're close to Roman Catholic theology on the supper, but not, not one-to-one. Again, they just, they don't. So like the Roman Catholic church has the Catholic catechism. If you want to know what you, they believe, you just go read their documents and it's very easy to see. Um, 
the Orthodox Church doesn't have any of that. They, they, don't, they don't systematize their thought. It's like a whole different way of thinking. Um, and so, but it is, it's closer to Roman Catholicism than it is to us, um, to the point where I was talking with an Orthodox guy once, and he was explaining all this to me. Um, if they, someone drops, like so the, the priest gives them the bread, and they drop it, because of what they believe, they will literally like stop the service, cut out that square of carpet and take it and burn it as a way to preserve like the sacredness of the body of the Lord. Um, so it's, it's a different world. Um, yeah. And you would know, if you go to a, like an Eastern Orthodox service, you'll see like, I'm not in Kansas anymore. This is, this is like a whole different thing, you know? Um, and they would say, you know, what they would say is there's a, there's a famous saying, uh, lex credende, lex orende. The, the law of, or actually it's lex orende, lex credende. The law of prayer is the law of belief or something like that. Essentially, if you want to know what we believe, listen to our prayers, um, which is actually kind of cool. Uh, it, it's kind of what we're saying. You want to know what we believe? Come just participate in the liturgy and you'll kind of see it. But we can't tell you what we believe because you have to see it. Um, it's Eastern thought, man. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, what a privilege it is to um, sit, meditate, reflect, discuss uh, these wonderful gifts that you have given us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and, and these, these signs of our, our, our union with you. You know us, Lord. You created us. You know that we are physical creatures. And so these physical things help us remember spiritual truths. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, promised to us that you will work through these things to nourish our faith and to sanctify us. Lord, we, we pray that as we continue in these things until the end of the world, until the end of our lives, uh, that we would be edified. And Lord, we do. We pray as a church that you would help us to practice them in a way that shows forth our unity, that shows forth our union with Christ, and that ultimately brings you glory and brings us spiritual edification, Lord. Uh, just pray that Christ would be glorified above all in baptism, the Lord's Supper, and everything else in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Bro, this heater is going. Oh, I'm sweating. <laughs> No, man. Do not eat.